Hello, welcome to Hospice Insights, the law and beyond, where we connect you to what matters in the ever-changing world of hospice and palliative care. Hospice Innovators, a conversation with William Finn of the Hospice of the Western Reserve. In today's conversation, I sit down with William Finn, the CEO of the Hospice of the Western Reserve, where we share stories of change, innovation, and opportunity in hospice and palliative care. Bill, I like to say, is a man who's always up to something. He sees the change on the horizon and leans into the opportunities it provides. During his tenure at Hospice of Western Reserve, he has expanded the depth and breadth of the organization through new partnerships, the development of new technologies, and better ways to deliver patient care. Bill's insights into where end of life is going and the roadmap we need to get there will leave you ready to go get up to something yourself. Thanks for listening and enjoy the conversation. Well, welcome, Bill. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Yeah, so um, I've known you um, uh, for a long time. And as I said in the intro, I feel like you're always up to something. So uh, every time I talk, I feel like there's a new initiative. And there's probably a bunch of stuff I don't even know that you're up to. Um, but, But before we get into all of that, I'd like to start my conversations um about sort of your personal background and where you grew up and and you know what inspired you to get into healthcare because I do think at least my personal experiences a lot of things didn't make sense while you were doing them but then in the rearview mirror like things make sense and you see connections and so I, I guess how did your path start? Well it's um it's a fascinating one for me and I feel like I'm incredibly fortunate to be on the path I'm on. When I was in high school, I firmly believed I was going to be a hospital administrator and uh, began uh, high school internships in a hospital pharmacy and then continued that as a uh, OR tech and an ED tech all through high school and college. And in doing that, I came face to face with some of the beautiful things about healthcare, but also some of the things I felt really challenging and lacking, particularly if we think about the holistic approach of hospice care, caring for people physically, socially, emotionally, spiritually. That doesn't happen in the ED or the uh, OR, particularly back in the late 70s, early 80s. So I began this personal trek and started volunteering with a brand new hospice outside of New York City in Long Island, and also had some really fascinating experiences there. Um, And then in college, uh, went to the professors responsible for the healthcare administration internships and said, listen, I'm I want to do a hospice internship. And he just lit up because I was the first one to ever say that. And fortunately enough, I was able to uh, start my relationship with Hospice Buffalo when we had, oh, maybe 16 patients and, and a very small crew and wound up staying with Hospice Buffalo and spending the last, I don't know, eight, 10 years as CEO there. Um, and left with, uh, you know, a $50 million organization and 600 patients a day, and then had the opportunity to come over to Hospice of the Western Reserve, which is one of those premier nonprofits in the country. We care for 1,200 patients a day um, in nine counties and have a very robust um, set of services to really meet the unique needs of patients wherever they are on their journey. 
So, so that's pretty insightful for a young fellow in New York to say, not only do I want to do healthcare administration in high school, um, I wanted to be a social, social psychologist, but um, anyway, I, I guess what planted that seed with you? Were your parents in healthcare or were you touched by something as a youngster or, or what was it? Yeah, so it's it's always those, uh, I guess now we call them social determinants. Yeah. Um, for, for me, it was a number of things, including um, five family members that had health issues. And the most powerful one for me was my grandmother who lived with us the last years of her life while she was on dialysis. She was a, uh, one of the early recipients of some of the first hypertensive medications back in the 40s, mm-hmm. 50s, and they worked, but they also blew out your kidneys. So um, um, her last five years of her life were really challenging. She essentially um, slept, went to dialysis, got dialysis, came home and slept. And we had these amazing discussions, me as a young teen, about what her life was. She was a great Mm. teacher, and she instilled this concept of uh, quality of life being the the paramount decision. And then she, at one point, you know, met with her doctor, her priest, her attorney. She wanted to make sure what she was doing was not against her religion, and she decided Mm. to discontinue the dialysis because she was suffering. She had hepatitis. There was other things going on. And um, that was a really powerful, powerful event for me where she took control of her life, including her death, Mm. and did that to um, really hold true to what was important to her. So, yeah, it's events like that that helped put me on a path to Mm. not go down a traditional healthcare role, but to look at this brand new thing called hospice that was popping up and, and see that as an alternative and a, something that could really speak to me. What a gift, like she was in your life. I mean, just in in the gift of time that you you had to have a relationship with her, but then, you know, the it's just remarkable the the impact that, that people can have on our, our life and you know, in the sort of pay it forward concept of like, and then the lives you touch and all of that is is really interesting. So, so, um, I, and, and as you said, I mean, Hospice of the Western Reserve is, you know, one of, the, as you said, the one of the premier, one of the largest nonprofit um, hospices in the country. And, and I, I guess, if you could expand upon the whole variety of different things you do, because one of the things I wanted to get to a bit later is, you know, what are further opportunities upstream and healthcare? I mean, that's what we keep talking about, but I guess what do your service lines look like now? And then I know you have this true North thing that you were telling me about. I mean, you're, you're up to many things. So give us sort of a glimpse of, of all the different things you're doing. Sure. So on the traditional hospice side, uh, we have a program that serves nine counties now and continues to look at opportunities to expand the geographic service area. Um, That's about 1,200 patients a day. Uh, We also have a standalone pediatric team, which is kind of unique, pediatric staff pediatric team. 
and they're caring for about 25 kids a day. Half of those kids are actually straight palliative care, maybe two-thirds, mm -hmm. and then one-third is more traditional hospice. Um, in addition to that, we have a home-based nurse practitioner palliative care program we call Navigator. That has another 650 patients or so in it. Um, that's worked out very well for us in that this really comes down to creating a trusting relationship where the patient um, understands how they can be in charge of their care and mm -hmm. that there's a good alignment between their care goals and what's happening to them. And that's one of the roles palliative care can play. So we find that about 78% of our patients in our pre-hospice palliative care make a conscious decision to come into hospice. And when they do, they come in uh, on the median length of stay twice as early as our community. Mm. So again, it's that trusting relationship um, where goals of care are driving what happens rather than a healthcare institution or a process driving. Yes. And we see that as being so important. Um, in terms of other services, we are looking at, uh, we're starting uh, the serious illness program January 1st. Yeah. One of the areas where the Medicare Advantage Carvin demo with CMMI will be taking place, so we're looking at how that impacts us as well. Um, and then we're looking at the um, additive component of, you know, since we're nonprofit, we don't have a return on shareholder value. We have a return on community value. So how do we speak to that? What do we do that every day someone could look at us and say, my gosh, that's such an important program because mm. what they do? So for us, that means that, you know, being experts in, in grief and yeah. trauma, it also means that our we have a uh, a Western Reserve Grief Center that really is community-facing and we do a lot of work with trauma-based loss, trauma-informed care. So those uh, teen suicides, uh, prom night car crashes, heart attacks at work, opiate overdoses, opiate overdoses, opiate overdoses. Mm -hmm. um, we're responding to all that trauma. We have contracts with uh, Cleveland Public Schools, for example, to train the trainer around grief and loss. Um, and then we're looking at advanced illness management, partnerships with different hospitals. We actually had the opportunity to work with one of our health systems here that had been a competitor, and they wanted to improve their quality of their hospice program and be more effective financially, so they came to us, and we have created a joint venture for them. So in addition to Hospice of the Western Reserve, we now have the standalone joint venture with that health system where we turn key all the hospice and the palliative care, uh, home-based palliative care for that system. So it was an innovative way of trying to deal with health systems needing to have some skin in the game and not simply wanting, in this case, to use a community partnership, if you would. So that, um, that joint venture has been up for uh, well over a year now and has been quite successful. So, and then you have like even more ancillary, some of the the analytics stuff that you were telling me about, and 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 I think in moving towards, um, and I, I guess not for profit healthcare in general. I know you're you're very involved in the National Hosp 
I call it NIPI, but um, National Hospice part, or National Partnership for Hospice Innovation. There we go. Um, and and just which is very focused on keeping not-for-profit uh, hospice um, viable and thriving. And and I know within over the last couple of years, you have actually merged with some other um, hospices and and um, and then also perhaps perhaps provide resources to support not-for-profit hospices. So can you talk about that? Absolutely, Meg. So it is that multi-pronged approach. We're looking for uh, merger and acquisition opportunities in a, a non-for-profit con context. We also are structuring ourselves to be able to support smaller nonprofits in a meaningful way that allows them to continue to support local communities. So we've created um, what's called the Care Solutions Network of Ohio, and this now has a number of members spread across Ohio, um, and we are providing the structure to do everything from, you know, the VBID work and yeah. the CMMI work now. So we'll come at that as one unit and negotiate that contract. Um, and it also has, um, from the Hospice of the Western Reserve, we've created a parent company called Care Solutions <coughs> Network. Um, I'm sorry, Western Reserve Care Solutions. Western Reserve Care Solutions will also have an MCO function and will uh, sell back office services to some of the smaller hospices. So we're doing that already. Uh, we have contracts to provide medical director services, medical on-call services. Um, we're doing uh, a palliative care uh, re-engineering for one of the hospices right now. Uh, there's also assessments around IT and quality and compliance. Mm. There's a variety of ways that we're providing an enriched service that a 100-patient-a-day hospice would really not be able to get to sure. efficiently. Um, so that's a, a real value driver there. Um, we see this being increasingly important because just, you know this, Meg, from the quality and compliance standpoint, it's really hard to do this well unless you've hit scale and can have resources to really uh, aggressively look at um, not only your point in time documentation, but how do you evolve and innovate to stay on top of the changes that are occurring and make sure you protect the, the contractual opportunity you have to bill Medicare. That's such a mm -hmm. risk for us when so much of our revenue comes from, from one place. Um, yeah. So the, the other thing we've done is looked at the need to innovate around understanding our data. And the big trick here is turning data into information. So what we've done, uh, knowing the lack in most electronic health records, is developed a Microsoft Dynamics platform tool that we own the IP for, and we call it True North Analytics. And what's so unique about this is in real time, it reaches into the general ledger, it reaches into the payroll system, and it reaches into the electronic health record and pulls that into a data warehouse where we get some auto reporting, but we can also manipulate that data. So if I want to know, for example, how does my care in the last seven days of life differ? If I want to know that by 
uh, cancer type or I want to know that by team or even by a single nurse, that data is readily available and usable. Um, we found that we did this for our own need, but a number of hospices have come to us saying, my God, this is, this is where we need to be going. Yeah. Can we buy this yeah. from you? So we actually have a number of hospices contracted with us now that are buying True North Analytics and improving their ability to turn data into information and mm. make real-time good decisions with this decision support tool. So that's really exciting. And then the other thing we're working on right now is, um, for lack of a better term, we're calling it a communication center. It will have a, a different name when it's done. But we wanted to be able to enhance the experience of the patient at all points in care. And as we've learned with COVID, we have to do an incredible job in virtual care. And that's certainly video, but it's mm -hmm. also every phone call. How do we hit every phone call out of the park? How do we anticipate need? How do we use this incredible tool to further the goals of care? So the communication center is a $3 million project. It's a state-of-the-art um, center that's using a lot of machine learning to enhance our ability to improve care. This means that there's, uh, for example, in an active call history, you know when you order a pizza from your neighborhood pizza place, they know when you ordered last, they know what toppings you got, they know mm -hmm. that you want you to, the delivery guy to go to the side door. It's simplistic, but that same type of mass customization has to be available for our care. No one wants to repeat their story time and again every time they call hospice for help. So this is going to integrate that. It's going to activate the screen, pop up based on phone number, um, that call. So you know who you're talking to right away. You know the last contact. You know what happened. You can ask if the medication got there and has it made a difference. It's that, it's that bringing the patient and the caregiving team closer together. Um, and then it also has the ability for us to use machine learning. It, the computer will get smarter as more of these events occur, mm. and it will help guide and direct what our intervention should look like. And then the other really cool thing is that we're taking a, a page from UPS and FedEx and using a very enhanced uh, um, GPS tracking system. So when we get that call at 3 o'clock in the morning, we're able to look at a master map with the locations of all our staff that's out in the field, know who's where, how far along they are in their visit, and then we can do uh, rerouting effectively and not interfere with what the nurse or the clinician is doing, mm -hmm. but also get the fastest response time. And then it also ties in the ability for us to notify the patient and family, I'm 10 minutes out, I'm five minutes out, I'm in your driveway. And that gives a sense of relief and comfort, and yeah. it's just best customer service as well. So I think there's a lot of these things we see in other industries that we need to step up and innovate and bring into end-of-life care, and we're excited to be part of that. Yeah, wow. That is just really inspiring and very cool, and lots of, of thoughts floating in my head. But um, I guess first, how do you do all of this? I mean, right, like this is 
a giant operation and each one of these is sort of its own mini business right and and just so interesting how far we are from just bedside care and what we called hospice 40 years ago and where you are now i guess how do you how do you accomplish this and i guess know that our listeners fall you know, I don't want them to think, well, well, Bill has this giant organization and, and I can't ever hope to to do what Bill is is doing. And obviously the way a smaller organization might implement some of these ideas looks different. But I think all of this, everyone has to move forward and it's going to look a little bit different. But I think the qualities that you've identified, which is how do we provide better quality? I mean, if we're going to survive the carbon, you know, you need to be able to prove quality, right? I mean, and and like you had said, how do you align with others if you're smaller so you can contract and and say, I can cover, you know, the, these different service lines and all these lives in the state or, or whatnot. But but I guess how do you get all of this stuff off the ground? Because this is this is a lot to, to tackle and then keep the wheels on of every day. Yeah, well, I think that's a really, really important concept. And um, like Jim Collins taught us, we have to figure out what our core competencies are. Mm -hmm. What are we really good at? And if we take things on, we have to do them all in and successfully. So. Um, don't bite off more than you can chew, but don't ever stop mm -hmm. being innovative at the same yeah. time. And small programs and big programs can do this. Um, you have to surround yourself with awesome people. You've got to spend the money to get the best people that are going to elevate you. Um, as the CEO, you want to be the, uh, the stupidest person in the room. You want to mm -hmm. surround yourself with brilliance. You want people that really get and buy into your culture. And I if I could say anything, it would be the importance of culture. And I just talked to a brand new team leader earlier, and um, she did hospice with another program and came here, and she was a nurse here, and we just elevated her after three years to a team leader position. And she said, Bill, this is the first time I ever felt like um, I belong. Mm. And that's a really powerful tool within our culture, the concept of belongingness, yeah, because, you know, we've talked about even in diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, how do you have a seat at the table? Well, that's really not good enough. A seat at the table doesn't mean that you're respected mm -hmm. and your voice is important. When you say I belong, it means that's an all in. This is where I should be. I feel whole here. I feel listened to. I feel I'm part of the team. So that applies to any program. If you can surround yourself with the best talent possible, if you can create a culture that rewards teamwork, a real strong patient focus, and innovation and value creation, regardless of your size, you're going to be successful. And then I think because of the environment we're in, we are going to have to look at creating the partnerships and links that allow small and medium and large hospices not only to survive, but to thrive. And that's mm -hmm. going to happen. We have to drive down our cost per patient day. We're competing against hospices that don't do inpatient care, for example. I own two inpatient units. Um, that creates a different cost basis for me than my for-profits that just contract with a nursing home and the care is 
um, nothing like what we do in our own inpatient mm -hmm. units. So how do I constantly look at creating the synergies that drive down my cost of care, but at the same time improve mm -hmm. the patient outcomes, the patient satisfaction, and allow us to um, really provide something that puts us leaps and bounds above our competitors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, that I belong, uh, I, I think you're exactly right, which is, I don't care what business uh, you're running, that I think is incredibly important because if people are really committed to the organization and, um, and, and then feel they can, you know, voice their ideas um, because great ideas are not just born by the CEO, it's born by all these other people who, um, and, and I, I guess, cause it's, you know, we always talk about what's, sort of shiny or successful, but I, I guess in terms of giving perspective here, you know, I'm sure there's things that you've done over your 30 plus years that didn't work. And <laughs> I guess what has been like that didn't work and and as a leader, when do you make that call like this this just isn't what I thought it was going to be or like you said, this isn't sort of the core of what we can do well. And so, so tell me some of those stories too. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a humility with being a good CEO where you allow yourself to be vulnerable and you realize you don't have all the answers, but again, you realize that risk taking is part of what we're expected to do. And it's where innovation comes out. The trick is to make small mistakes and learn fast. Mm -hmm. If we can do that, if we can get to know quickly, um, we've done a, a good deed there. So there's been plenty of times, and I think what I've learned is um, idea generation is something I love doing. What I find really important is to have a good team that is going to look at me cross-eyed and say, what are you thinking? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at the yeah. same time, you know, let's put it on the whiteboard, rip it apart, and see what the night is, what the kernel of opportunity is. Um, and that's where the joyfulness in, in this job comes in, that we can create something new that really will improve uh, the experience for either our patients and families or our caregiving team, our staff. Um, so yeah, I, I, in orient, I start orientation for all our staff. I do the first two yeah. hours, because it's so important for me that people here were all on the same page, that culture is the thing, it's our secret sauce. Mm. We actually use the phrase that our culture is our invisible architecture. It is mm. the thing that defines who we are. So that buy-in has to occur from the first moment you walk into our organization. Mm. And you need to, it needs to be tangible, palpable, where you understand this is a different place to me. This is, there's something special here. How do I become part of this and how do I contribute in a meaningful way. So I also tell people that, you know, I make more mistakes in a week than, than our team makes in a year. Mm -hmm. uh, but we need to be generative. We need to be innovative. We need to be grounded in, in what's true and real to us and what our mission calls us to do. But we need to stretch our wings, particularly at this moment in time, and really ask those questions of, what does our continuum look like when we see health systems, insurers that are all now actively, aggressively looking at home 
as the current and future place of care. Yes. That's our turf. So how do we really provide product and service in a way that they turn to us for partnership rather than recreate it themselves? Um, I think that's pretty important. And I would suggest that hospices in America don't provide end-of-life care. Yeah. What we do is help really ill people live incredibly well and be in charge of their care at home. And that isn't bound by six months or less. So in my mind, our systems contact people when their chronic illness is no longer stable. That's the beginning point of a transition that's going to take you to hospice care. But you're going to live for the one, three, five years of that journey. Mm -hmm. And I think our role is to be present during that journey. We're the best chance that patient has to make sure their goals of care stay aligned with what happens to them. And we hear lots of stories of people that have just incredible uh, treatments and therapies done to them when it may not have really been what they were hoping for, but the system is really good at moving you through it. So I think we have a role that also speaks to our role in terms of community advocacy. How are we getting out there and in our communities being that voice for uh, owning your care, for mm -hmm. engaging you know, like La Crosse, Wisconsin, which is amazing. How do we all elevate and celebrate advanced directives? Yeah. How do we look at hospice not being a scary thing, but the best damn thing in the world to get yeah. me at home and keep me healthy as my health declines? And that's really what we're talking about. Absolutely. Well, which, which then brings uh, to, I think, a question that that I feel like more and more of our clients are talking about is everything you said, which is hospice, we're not limited by that model of care or that payment stream. I mean, right, the word hospice and all of that stuff, it's a, a construct from, from law, but but your name is Hospice of the Western Reserve. And so um, I've been on the journey of many, many programs who have made the decision to take that out of their name because I don't, I, I want to be, as you said, it, you know, something bigger than that. I guess there, you have so much brand recognition. I mean, where are you, what are your thoughts on, on that? Um, so we'd like to play both sides against the middle. Uh, we'd, like to use our, we'd like to use our brand recognition and brand dominance, so we keep that hospice of the Western Reserve. But you'll notice I said earlier that we have a parent company called Western Reserve Care Solutions. That's the program that steps out the uh, partnerships with other hospices, the True North Analytics, the uh, Advanced Illness Management, the Sudden Illness Program, um, all those types of things, the MCO-related stuff, that's all coming through the parent. So we've knowingly kept the hospice product identified the way the community knows it, but we've built onto that all the other services that are not specifically uh, limited by the mm -hmm. six months or less hospice definition. Yeah, I think a lot of um, nonprofits are, are thinking through their corporate structure, which has been largely fairly simple. Like we are one entity and I run all my businesses through this one entity, as opposed to, I think as we're getting 
broader uh, and you know I know there's folks out there that that do adult daycare and are you know even considering perhaps doing child care and adult daycare together because of the research supports that you know for dementia patients and and children that can be you know very helpful and so as you continue to evolve I, I think there's while it's the less sexy stuff of of um, running a business I think that it requires us to sort of step back and say you know my my structure from and governance from 30 years ago probably isn't going to be fit the bill and um you know rethinking that and and so so um i, I guess before we we leave sort of the the various things you put on the table what how would you define your culture because you said it, it is you know the invisible invisible shield and and so if you um, asked any employee, how do you think they would define your culture? So we do call it the invisible architecture. Oh, and invisible architecture. <laughs> A little different than shield. Yeah. That's okay. Um, I would hope that our staff see our culture as one that celebrates um, innovation, high quality, the individual contribution of each member to the greater collective good we can provide to our staff as well as to our community and our, our patients and families. Um, I think they would readily identify us as a high quality provider that essentially puts the patient and family at the center of every decision. Mm. And I would celebrate that. I think that's a great thing. So how do you stay connected to the core of what you, because as a CEO of, of a large organization, you are not at the bedside of patients and you're not um, even at IDT meetings. And so, but I, I think that that's what brought you full circle to this work. And how do you stay grounded in the long days, the frustrations, the all that stuff. How do you how do you get connected to to what it is that you do in the lives that are you know positively impacted by all the people that care for your patients? Yeah. Well, I um, would tell you, being at the bedside and being part of the IDT for me is really important. So I volunteer. And it's not uncommon for me to volunteer as an aide on a night shift at one of our inpatient units and work with our staff and be present with them. And at first they were really nervous and jerky about it. And the last time I did it, they walked, they walked in, I walked in and, and often the staff doesn't know I'm coming on that shift. I just show up in my scrubs. Um, and the aide said, okay, you, you go start that postmortem. I'll be in there in a minute. <laughs> so she was very comfortable at telling me what to do and how to do it. Um, and the same thing with the IDG. I think that we have to stay close to who we are and what we do. So for me, mm. um, it's, it's a whole layering of activities that keep us close. So it's silly, but I send a note to everybody on their birthday. Um, we do town hall meetings, and that's really important. It's 
you know, no more than 20 minutes of me telling them what's going on. The rest of it all is all Q&A. And now in this time, we've been doing it virtually, and actually it's been hugely successful. Mm. Because they're smaller groups. People feel like they can – it's more intimate. They can get their yeah. questions put out there. The aides love it. Um, so we're, that's something we're going to change. We're going to keep doing the mini virtual town halls as well as the other town halls. Um, <clears throat> again, I think it's starting orientation by being present with them and setting the stage for that. And, and we ask this of all our, our leaders, that you do something that, that demonstrates how you stay close to who we are. So our chief clinical officer, uh, before COVID, once a month, she'd spend the day out in the field with a staff member. Mm-hmm. Um, it keeps us close to what really is working, what's not working, what do we need to think about, um, and it keeps us real. I love that. That's really, really cool. Um, so, so I guess as we, we come to a close here, you and I have talked about governance and it's something that, um, I've talked to a number of CEOs about, and we have this governance, um, podcast series we've been doing, um, because as you can imagine, as a lawyer, I don't oftentimes talk to boards, but I usually am when when something bad is is happening, and and so I see see good boards in action. I see boards that struggle, and and um, and but I think that obviously as a community nonprofit, your board is incredibly important in terms of connecting you to the community. Um, but I guess if we could sort of pivot to talking about, you know, what does your board look like? Who, what are the skills you look for in your board? Cause it's not just like, I gave you a bunch of money. And so now I'm going to put you on my board. Like, tell me a little bit about your approach to that. And then I'd like to hear about how you connect them to, to the mission of the organization. Sure. So our board structure is changing. On January 1st, we will create our hospice foundation. Um, So we'll pull off that function and have that be separate from the parent company board. Um, Our parent company board has really been a strategy board. And Mm -hmm. to expect those same people to be a development board is is hard. Not everybody wants to be development. Not everybody's energized by that. So this uh, process will give us a, a, a strong foci on development as a separate function. Um, it is a community-based board of directors. We are looking for folks that um, not just have the pocket or have the experience or the street credentials, but what, what's the emotional tie? You know, Have you used our services? Have you been touched by us? Do you really get it? I'd rather have someone that maybe isn't the CEO of a big company, but is passionate about it than, than the CEO that isn't mm-hmm. going to show up. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we, we do have an awfully good board. It is strategy-focused. Um, I think it's really important for boards to also understand the role of the CEO versus the role of the board, and that's something yeah. that you reiterate. So we actually have a, a board manual we put together. I think it's about 50 pages. And it's part of the board orientation, but they're expected to know all the basics. Meg, mm-hmm. from your perspective, the board has to know what their fiduciary is. They have <laughs> yeah, to exactly. The basic tenets of Medicare reimbursement and what that means. Um, 
So we do a lot of investment in our board. Every board member is ex assigned a mentor when they start. Oh, so cool. Someone will take them along. I have periodic calls with the board members to make sure they're coming along. And then it's creating the network and communication where they stay close, they want to stay close. So something that I picked up from my predecessor and built on, I do a Friday email that goes to our board members and then the same email goes to our management team. And it's um, talking about where we are, where our census is, what's going on, Often it will have a link to an article or two that we feel is relevant to mm. our environment. You know, the board shows up however many times a year for the board meeting. They get reading materials ahead of time. So you think about the points of contact. What do you have, 6, 8, 10, 12? Well, there's 52 weeks in a year. If I send out one or two articles, and if they take the time to read those, I've created a much more informed board member who Absolutely. has a depth and breadth of a very complex healthcare delivery system we have in America and our role in that. So we look at doing that. We invite them to participate in a number of the discussions we have, certainly around strategy, but also around innovation and program development. Um, we use uh, videos a lot. So we also send out very short one, mm. two, three videos um, to update board members, to update our staff. For the last six months, we've been doing a series of videos on resilience. And again, it's, ah. it's morphed. It started with me talking about this. Now I go out and socially distance, I interview our staff. And that's ah. been really powerful to have an aide tell you what they're doing to get yeah. through COVID and stay strong to have a social worker do that, to have a volunteer do that, whoever it may be. Um, and we'll do that with our board members too. Um, and then also looking at how we extend that concept to our next tier, which is this huge broad base of volunteers we have, and then past board <laughs> members, other community-related people. So what is our communication networking related to those people and how do we do that? I'd also suggest that um, the board sharing becomes really important. Do they feel connected as a board? Do they feel that there's some mm. bonding of them together? And then one thing we need to do more work on is the follow-up. You know, let's let's survey our board. Let's find out from them what's working, when they feel valued. Do they feel we're hitting on all cylinders? Do they feel we're committed to a strategic plan? Things like that. Um, I think that will be really helpful for us to see mm -hmm. how that all together. So it's a, it's always a work in progress, um, but it's one that, you know, if we go into it with a strong culture and a good strategy, I think every hospice can be successful. Yeah. Well, and uh, you use the word resilience, which is, I think, so important for our humanity, right? I mean, ultimately we're humans taking care of humans, which we can talk about all this technology that can aid in it. But I, you know, when I started these hospice innovator conversations, I, one of my last questions I'd ask was about, do you think like sort of technology will advance so far that it's not the human to human connection like it takes the human out of the care um and and then and then COVID happened and then you know so much of what we did or do has gone virtual and 
and I think to some great benefits, right? I mean, I think people have, and including CMS has seen the benefits of telehealth and what you can do and that you can actually touch patients more often, not less. And then maybe it's in different ways and I don't think it's a substitute, but I guess, how do you sort of balance the role of technology with what I think hospice does so well and what our staff is ultimately connected to? Because I hear so, it's very hard for staff right now to care for patients because of these barriers we have. I mean, you have this talk about not being able to connect. I mean, when you physically can't touch in the same way and all of that. So so tell me a little bit about the the balance between sort of that that human to human connection and the role of technology. And it's probably been the biggest struggle for our staff not doing what they know they want to do and what makes our care exceptional. They can't lean into the care and do the deep work of hospice when so much is being virtual and they can't hold a hand and be at a bedside and and look people in the eye, you know, from a foot apart. Uh, So that is a problem. The way I I see technology is um, as a catalyst. Uh, I don't see it supplanting what we do. I see it augmenting. I see it facilitating new things. One of the things we found that's been fascinating is how many more family members want to participate in care virtually Uh that didn't before. You know, the daughter across the the country now wants to sit in on the the calls um, with the social worker or spiritual care or whatever it may be. And we're also seeing on the grief side, we've been able to serve more people in the grief process virtually. Mm. We actually have introduced Grief Coach, which is a, we're the first hospice in America to do this, where it's a texting-based program where mm. the, uh, the survivor gets to uh, put as much information as they want in, invite their family and friends to participate, and then those people get periodic tests, te- texts mm. coming from us to help them through their grief. And it's been really powerful. So we've learned wow. so much about how technology can be that catalyst to improve care, never replace what we do in person. And as I said, our team just is gnawing at the bit to get back in the home yeah. fully and yeah. do that uh, high touch care again. That's wonderful. And I guess as we close here, sort of the last place I wanted to go was, um, sort of how you stay inspired. And I think for folks working in healthcare, especially during COVID, I think the tank gets empty, um, is that people, it is, um, I think just especially obviously frontline workers, I mean, it is, there's a lot of suffering. And I I think for hospice in, in particular, there are, we have worked so hard to, um, bring good death to people. And now we have, uh, you know, an epidemic of loneliness at the same time we have this pandemic and, and just there's, I mean, I personally have a lot of sadness around just how many deaths are happening and people are alone and, um, and they don't have hospice um, and all this, all this, but I, I guess that is the backdrop of, there is a lot of suffering in the world. There always was, there always will be. I think this is a particular, uh, particularly difficult time, I guess. 
how do you stay inspired and motivated? What do you read? What do you listen to? What do you do? Like I make art and I, I learn about Stoic philosophy and read that. Like, what is it for you that like keeps you fired up? Wow. Um, it's a lot of things. Um, it's um, the top two on the list are my family and faith. Um, those have been really, really important. And I, I tell you, I'm so inspired by our caregiving staff. I mean, this sucks right now. And as a CEO, this is really hard to figure out the 2021 budget to know how we're going to have enough money yeah. to do all these things that need to be done and keep taking these hits we're taking and knowing how fast the future is changing. All I need to do is reground and spend an hour with an aide. And mm. it all comes right back to focus about what this is about, what fills, yeah. fills me back up and helps me realize my job is to make sure they can be incredibly successful and that they can be here 10 years from now. And what we've created doesn't ever get morphed into something that doesn't keep these core values in place. So mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of change coming. I think it's up to, um, you know, the really good high quality hospices in America to hold their ground and make sure that whatever the morphing of healthcare delivery is, we don't lose this thing that Dame Sicily and so many others yeah. stood up and said, we need to do this because this is what the patient and family want. Yeah. And we can't lose that as we try and create the next thing. Yeah, no, that, that's fantastic. And I, I think um, I too find, I mean, I'm further removed from, from the mission of, of my clients, but I think getting grounded in the important work my clients do is something because as lawyers, you know, you have to deal with a lot of problems and, you know, I mean, yes, there's victories, but I mean, I think connecting to the mission of what, what it is our clients do at the bedside. And so um, it's been, been great because I feel like more hospices have put their social workers out front and they've recorded videos and, and things about grief. And, and um, so anyway, it, it has allowed me to connect actually with my clients a little bit more, which I think fills the pot in terms of, because um, obviously the, the trials and tribulations of government enforcement and, and whatnot is, is constantly with us. And, and so, um, so, uh, well, this has been such a wonderful conversation and you're such an inspiring leader who is um, always doing, as I said, many things, but I, I think what struck me most from, from this conversation is how you have persisted in being grounded in the, you know, the, the sort of boots on the ground work that it is that we do, because I think that that's the wellspring for, for so much of, of what you do, right? I mean, it's why you're a hospice CEO and not running Pepsi, right? <laughs> or, you know, some other company, right? I mean, hospice people are, I think of themselves unique. Um, so so thank you for sharing your your insights and just deep wisdom in, in this area. I, I, I just know um, our listeners will really enjoy this conversation. So, so thank you. Thanks, Meg. I appreciate having the time to talk about this. Well, that is it for today's episode of Hospice Insights, The Law and Beyond. 
one side.